Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. This episode of the Adventure Jogger podcast brought to you by Jessica Welton, Carla Graves, Sean McDermott, April Thunberg, Megan Music, all of our Patreon supporters, and you. Yes, I'm talking to you, the listener. The Adventure Jogger, a podcast about trail and ultra running. Meet fascinating runners from the front, middle, and back of the pack, sharing inspiring and funny stories about life and running. Running should be fun, and so should running podcasts. I'm your host, Ryan Pluckelman, and this is The Adventure Jogger. Gwen, I am so excited to have you on The Adventure Jogger because I've wanted to have a conversation about spirituality, and connections to the divine and ultra running. And I've been looking for like a person to have that conversation with for a very long time. And then a friend sent me uh, a, a post of your book and I'm like, oh, oh, this is too perfect. Thank you for, for coming on the Adventure Jogger. Well, thank you for having me. And th- those are my favorite topics. So this is, other than being both of us native cheeseheads, we have some other things in common, which are really amazing. So I'm excited to talk with you. Thank you. Well, okay, so let's start there. Were you in academia before you were an ultra runner, or which came first, the academia or the hours and hours on end on your feet? The academia came first. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually not that athletic until I got to graduate school, uh, actually postgraduate school. My first gig outside of my first graduate degree was in southwestern Colorado. So here I am in the mountains, and how can you not be active, right? And so my real journey in athleticism began then, and it it progressed. It it changed a little bit. Ultra running for about 11 years now, I've been ultra running. Okay, so you let's go back to your first one. Do you remember your first ultra? Uh, Very well, very well. What was it? It was Children of the Cane. A friend of mine here in um, South Louisiana, he his family has a uh, sugarcane plantation, mm-hmm. and it's been in the family for a long, 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 long time. And he decided to start a race series, and our races were in his family's sugarcane fields. It was amazing. Um, so that was my very first race. It was a 50K um, and, and I will I will never forget it. It was the most remarkable experience, and that's why I kept doing them. It was it was that phenomenal. It's always funny because everybody's first ultra goes one of two ways. It goes great, everything's wonderful, this is so amazing, or it all falls apart 
and they have to walk the last 10 miles. But then after a week, they're like, oh, well, that was great. I, I, it wasn't fun for the it wasn't fun until a week later when you're like, oh, I could have done all of this better. Did yours go good the first one or were you walking the last 10 miles? Oh, no, I, I was walking and I was vomiting the last <laughs> two miles. <laughs> to be truth be told, I know it's it's, it's it's glorious and it is a very, very sexy sport. I'm, I'm joking, of course. Um, but I do remember all of the feelings until I got sick. Uh, one of the things in South Louisiana, we have heat and humidity. Yeah. And I always run early, early in the mornings to avoid the worst of the heat. Yeah. And so when you're running in the heat of day and you're not used to it, that can create some problems and nutrition is a big problem. And so I was not on task with my nutrition. In fact, I was overdoing it a little bit, which made me sick. Um, but I will tell you that I was so hard, so far ahead of my goal time already that getting sick only set me back about 15 minutes. Um, I did have to stop at an aid station and drink a tremendous amount of Coke. Um, which is, I call it the elixir of the gods because when you're in that place, nothing feels better than caffeine, sugar, and carbonation, right? Um, so anyway, I, I finished um, right around my goal, a little after my goal time, but I, I felt great. It took me a few minutes to, to kind of re-regulate, and then, yeah, I was great. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't as excited to do the second one until the next day, but I was. <laughs> it is so funny because you're so right. Sometimes, you know, I don't I don't drink Coke at all, except at races. I don't know what it is, but something about I'll see it and then I'll go, oh, I need that in my life. And it's like it's like rocket fuel. It's the best tasting thing in the world. And and if you know, nothing gets you more upset than when somebody has Pepsi at an aid station. Which you'd be like, oh come on, really? Pepsi was really? it on Where's sale. Good stuff, right? <laughs> <laughs> Put this, get this garbage out of here. Where's, where's right. my Coke? Um, when did the idea, the genesis of, well, okay, but before I get to that, I want to know what were you studying in 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 college, and what were you gearing towards in the world of academia? Okay, so my my undergrad degree a bazillion years ago was in broadcast journalism, and I was in the media. I did TV and radio for a while. Get out! And that was not my jam. Um, I'm I, I don't like, like being a girly girl. I'm not the kind of person that wants my hair to look good, makeup, clothes. I don't really care to be honest with you. Which is why I make a great ultra runner because there's no <laughs> charm in that at all. Um, but but nonetheless, I I decided to go back to school. I got my master's in communication, mm-hmm. and then I was just everywhere. And I when I got to LSU uh, twelve years ago. Um, I, I started running more. I also then went back to graduate school for philosophy and I did that while I was teaching. And so that's where this idea came from is it was just one of those curious things. I'm an insatiable learner. I'm, I've got so much, I'm curious about everything. And so I, that's how I came up with the idea to put that. This was originally my thesis. Um, but I really, I love the philosophy, but I also needed science. You know, I wanted to know what was really happening in our brains and our bodies. What was this feeling? I wanted, I asked everybody, what is it? 
the race directors would say, yeah, I mean, I can tell he was in it, but I don't know what it is. So for years, we were trying to define what this was, this experience we were having. We were just like, yeah, you know, that kind of 70s hippie. We are all just in this in this place, not simultaneously. That would have been awesome. Right. Um, nobody could tell me what it was. And I was determined to find out what it was. And since I wrote this book, I've been doing even more research, and I'm pretty convinced that I have a, a somewhat of a handle on it now, although I'm sure there's a lot more than I can possibly uh, know, know at this point that anybody knows at this point. Because we're kind of connecting, and your book connects these mysteries of the universe, these things that people have been trying to wrap their, their head around for millennia with ultra running and especially those deep dark places we go to when it all starts to fall apart or this the feeling of satisfaction when it's complete like those deep dark moments and even the 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 joyous moments because there is some connection and everybody gets into a rhythm and it happens at some point where you're in that zone where everything is flowing perfectly and your mind is is clear and all the all you, you can feel everything around you you can sense everything around you and it's this moment where when you get it you feel like this connection to everything around you like you are at one with the universe absolutely and there's that consciousness, one of the things I did study in, in philosophy was panpsychism and the idea that consciousness um, is in everything, plants. I wrote a very interesting paper about consciousness even in rocks um, because I, when I'm in that state, I am convinced. And actually, I'm not even, I don't even have to convince myself in that state anymore. Um, and, and if you look into science and some of the science I've looked in even since this book, um, we are 99.99, I think there's another nine in there, I'm not sure, empty space, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's, it's not empty, that's that's energy, right? And that is true of every particle, not just us as living beings, um, plants, I did a whole paper about sentience and plants and, and consciousness and plants and all, so one thing I've learned is that not everything is energy, literally everything is energy. I've studied a lot of, of um, you know, I, I, I follow a lot of astrophysicists, uh, heliophysicists. I follow a lot of the, the most brilliant minds. Um, and I really want to hear what they say because I learn so much from them. But, but I really do especially love quantum physics and the idea of, of um, neuro... Uh, Oh, I'm neuroplasticity. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, a lot of a lot of researchers that have really focus on how our brains impact our bodies and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And so, honestly, I think that there's just more to that than most people realize. And when you are in that state that you just described, Ryan, you're in this beautiful place where your brain has gotten rid of all the garbage. I call it noise. Mm-hmm. And that is your default mode network in your brain. We spend at least 50% of our lives just in survival. I have to do this. I have to stop at the store. I have to pick up the dry cleaning. I have to, I have to, I have to, right? That's normal. That's human survival. We all have to do that. Unless you're a monk and you're really lucky in that way that you can meditate all the time. (laughs) Um, the, The bottom line is we get used to using that part of our brain all the time or as much as possible because we're kind of stuck in there. We always have something else we have to think about for our own survival, our own state of well-being as a human being. However, when you go through, especially ultra running, you get rid of all that junk. 
right? Mm -hmm. In my book, you'll read lots of stories of ultra runners who that's what they do. I was talking with someone recently who said, I need to do this so I don't kill anybody. I'm like, I know, right? You got to get that out. Once you get that out, you start solving your problems and you start looking inward. There's this process, as I'm sure you've experienced too, and then you get to that place. And that flow state is when you're actually using another part of your brain. You're not focusing on that default mode network. Now you're in this beta theta wave, which is the equivalent to you falling asleep. Right before you fall asleep, you're in that, you're in, you're in theta, right? Mm-hmm. Right when you wake up in the morning, before you're fully awake, you're in theta. And when you're in that beta theta kind of, kind of uh, brain's wave pattern, you are most able to connect with other parts of your brain, with your body, you are most likely to program your subconscious. Um, and that's the best time to manifest. That's the best time to to set intentions for yourself, for the day, for whatever. That's where we are when we are ultra running. Not at first. <laughs> it's just like everybody else. We have to work through all of that stuff. But when you get to that flow state, that's where you are. Some ultra runners I interviewed, they don't even feel their bodies anymore. I experienced that, experienced that once. Really? And I, I didn't even realize I was running. I went, wait, what? Because you, when you bring yourself back to survival, where's my body, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost like that jerking awake because you hear the dog vomiting in the other room or whatever, right? You, oh, I can't, I can't not hear that. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, when you get to that state, that's where you are. You're in theta. You're not in survival anymore. Now you're in connection. So interesting and so much to unpack. Do you think, Gwen, that the biggest problem and why it's so hard to get into that state that we were talking about is because society now has even more distractions? Like there are so many things that are distracting and preoccupying our minds. And that's, you know, whether it's social media or television or whatever. Um, is there so much distracting us? And that's why to get to that state, extreme measures have to be taken, like, I don't know, running an ultra marathon? Absolutely, yes. Um, there's uh, one, one of the things I studied in philosophy is we, we talked about how when agriculture started, our connection to the world stopped. Mm-hmm. So when we were hunter gatherers, for instance, we had no choice but to be acutely aware of nature, weather patterns, animals, plants, etc. That's we needed to do that to survive. So we were more in that state, in that flow state, where we could, in our survival mode, be able to detect these nuances of everything in order to get things we needed to survive. So it wasn't survival; it was the, it was more of a process, an attunement. Now we are so distracted with so much junk and so many people telling us what we need to think about. And then we buy into that. It's like that matrix idea, right? We buy into this is our reality. And it's really not uh, what other people tell us to think about. And sometimes we just fall victim to that because it's so much easier than having to stop and think for ourselves or to stop and meditate. It's hard for some of us to meditate. It's really hard. Um, and, And I know that. But if we do that, we find this remarkable ability to lose ourselves and all of that junk and connect to other people, plants, animals, nature in ways that are more profound than 
and more real, more authentic than all this other junk that we we actually are always preoccupied with. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are preoccupied with a lot of junk. You know, when you think of the space in the brain, Gwen, that used to be occupied with, okay, I've got to be able to hear if there's a jaguar coming to get me is now filled with are there any likes did i get a, did i get likes on that on that post exactly. or or whatever and so you're right most people don't i mean i'm sure there are some people that have their phones with them when they're out on the course and they're taking photos and they're checking likes and all that stuff but for a lot of us we leave that behind right you, you leave your phone in the car or yes. with your crew or whomever and so you're just kind of forced after a while after the after the the joy of the beginning is over with and everyone kind of settles into a groove, that's where you can kind of connect to that space because you're right, all the distractions are gone at that point. It's survival mode of next aid station, next mm-hmm. hill, whatever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think one thing I have found and research has found too is that when you're, when you're trail running, when you're on this ultra path, you're not only be in, in that lack of, of all those distractions, but, but you're also in a place where you are absorbing all kinds of, of things that are being produced by plants. Uh, trees talk with each other. And I have a whole chapter on environmental psychology about forest bathing and all of the benefits of being in nature that actually do affect us in a physiological way as well as in a mental way and when we are absorbing these communications we are absorbing all of these these uh, uh, hormones that, that plants are using to communicate uh, they've been found that that's effective in in treating cancer it's good for better for depression anxiety i mean the the japanese have been studying this for so long we're just starting to look at it our you know in the west here but the idea of forest bathing it's not new we are more in touch with ourselves and our world simply by being in it. All this concrete stuff, that's not us. That, that's, that's all not important. It's all an illusion of what somebody thought was a good idea. So just quickly for those that are saying forest bathing, what is she talking about? I don't, I'm not recommending you go to your local woods and bathe in the stream there. That could get you in trouble. And I don't want anybody <laughs> ending up in the clink because of something they heard on the adventure jogger. But but the define forest bathing for us. Forest bathing is a lot of things. But essentially when you are in nature, and I don't, you know, for me, I don't often get that opportunity because the closest trails are, you know, 45 minutes away and mm-hmm. it's just not as much as I'd like to. When you are in nature, um, one, of the, one of the really amazing things uh, to know is that plants recognize us they communicate with us trees communicate with us we get in the middle of their communication with each other and the energy is not only given but it's received in some pretty amazing ways so there's been a lot of research to show how simply taking a walk in the woods 
all how all everything changes and not only physiologically but psychologically and all the benefits of that uh so there's been a lot of i'm trying to think of there's one study in particular there are plants for instance that will respond to different colors that you're wearing there are plants that will respond to well you've seen some of the studies where people are throwing negative energy they're being angry and they're giving negative messages to plants and they'll wither and die versus those who are provided with love and nurturance and music even music and they will thrive this is not new anymore i mean this is the science you know it's funny because on the surface someone listening to this is going this woman is talking woo woo wacko stuff and no, I mean, th- these are these are actual, I've, I read the studies. There's actual scientific proof that plants, house plants especially, will actually be healthier if they're, if they, if they hear music and kind words and all of that, where if there's anger and aggression towards the plant, they're less likely to survive. Like if you just grab a plant, grab two plants, put them in two separate rooms, shout and scream at one all the time, and then be nice to the other one, the one you're nice to for whatever reason, and they're trying to figure that out, is is going to do better. This just came out. I saw this study, and it was this past week, where scientists have finally recorded the noises that plants make when they're under stress. We can't hear the noise, but plants make noise when they're under stress, it sounds like kind of popcorn popping type of thing. This was in, these were in, you know, journals of actual science. This was not in the crystal shop. This was in journals of actual science where they found animal or plants make sounds when they're under stress. They absolutely do. In fact, I follow a guy on TikTok. I, I, okay, let me just preface this by saying most of my TikToking is all educational. I, I follow Neil deGrasse Tyson. Love him. I follow I follow all of these really brilliant minds. I do like my dog videos. I'm going to just say that now. And, and fluffy dogs, loving on cats. I can't get enough of it. But I will say that there is, I'm trying to remember his name. He actually records music that plants create. So in what you're saying, he will actually set it up to some sort of a transmitter and you can literally hear the energy coming from the the plants through a device and they all make different sounds. They all make different and especially like you were just saying, if they're under duress, it's a lot different than if they're thriving and happy. And I love what he does because he does this in different parts of the world with different plants. And it's amazing the sounds. Actually, a student, when I was talking about this, one of my classes brought this up to me uh, and I didn't even know. So I started following him too. And it's, it's phenomenal. It's just amazing. So interesting, so fascinating. And it's so cool that the science that you that has been released since your book has come out, mm-hmm. a lot of these things are backing up the things you talk about in your book as well. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I keep researching it just because I'm fascinated with it. And the more I learned, the more I thought, yeah, you know, I, I believed in this for a long time before I had science to back it up, but I didn't really talk about it as much. Uh, because as an academic, I have to have some sort of, of credible evidence of research, right? And before I can actually speak to most people about it, that's just my responsibility as an academic. But in my mind, I knew it was true. I, I absolutely positively knew it. Um, and now that there's science backing it up, it's just, it's it's phenomenal. I love talking about it. Yeah, because you're a professor at LSU. It's not like you're a professor at, you know, 
some made up university of whatever. You're like LSU. You can't be walking around the, in professor's lounge like, hey guys, let's talk about plants talking to each other. You needed some some science to back it up, and that must have been great when you found like, oh man, turns out I was right. Exactly, exactly. It was so funny because I was I was actually arguing in a philosophy class about telepathy. And that there are some people I'm strongly connected with on other parts of the world that I can, I know when something's going on, I can contact them. And I knew I was onto something. It may not have been exactly the thing, but it was similar to the thing. And there are people saying, oh, that's, that's not true. It's not true. And then who wins a Nobel Prize for the idea of, uh, of uh, what's the quantum physics? Quantum entanglement. Uh, thank you. Quantum entanglement. Uh-huh. And so here, that comes just shortly after this debate I had uh, in, in one of my philosophy classes. So the whole idea of quantum entanglement is real. And you, when you see science, for instance, and light waves, waves can go through things that we never even expected. It can stop and then start again without, if there's any kind of interference. There are so many things going on that can actually end up proving a lot of the things that until recently everybody said was woo and crazy and, and whatever. But we're just really starting to find science to justify getting back to who we really are. And if that's the way we do it, great. You know, but it's it's good to see that there is more research and more people taking it more seriously. Well, I think, too, the, the package needs to be presented in a way that's, you know, consumable for the masses. And most of the stuff that you're talking about was... A lot of the the counterculture, a lot of the Eastern mystic philosophies that were brought to the United States in the like 1960s, when all of a sudden everybody read, you know, uh, uh, the, the Zen guidebooks and all of that, and, and all of a sudden these new ideas came in. These ideas weren't new in the world; they've been going on since the beginning of time. But it's just all of a sudden in the West, we got all these ideas of the interconnectedness. Of all things, um, Alan Watts, who is uh, one of my favorite philosophers of all time, said, "You know, we are the universe experiencing itself one person, one point of view at a time." Which he wasn't making that up. That was that's in the basis of you know Hinduism and Buddhism and you know other Eastern religions, and he was the one who was trying to make it make sense for the Western mind. So it's interesting now that science is starting to find basis for some of these things that you know the the eastern philosophies and religions have been talking about for a very long time and so maybe this is the package finally that's consumable for a lot of for a lot of people here in the united states in the western world to go like oh there is something to the interconnectedness of all things Exactly. It's it's kind of a shame if you look back on it historically and say, well, you know, we lost that for a long time, you know, um, in the Western world. We really we had a we we could not really embrace it the way that it was embraced in other parts of the world. And and we had a lot of, you know, prove it, prove it kind of ideas. We still do. Right. We still do. But I think that now those those really really tight structures are loosening and people are starting to have more conversations. I love that I am seeing and hearing and reading about this research being used in in governments, in the military, 
in a lot of, of regards. Um, I love hearing about declassified CIA documents where they actually have been studying this. They just didn't tell anybody. <laughs> you know, they've been studying a lot of things. Uh, and I think that it's, it's sometimes we do need validation because we, we grew up, all of us um, that are alive today, grew up with a lot of distrust and a lot of things mm-hmm. and a lot of people and a lot of ideas. Um, we may have some faith, but outside of that, that faith is limited to you know, our creator, to our whatever, our family, ourselves. But what about the world? We don't trust anybody. Mm-hmm. And we have good reason not to, to a degree. But nonetheless, it's, when we start thinking about we realizing that everybody's on their own journey and they're here on their path and wherever their path is, it, it's probably not yours. But it's not to judge. I have a problem with that sometimes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's really challenging, especially when there's destruction and they're causing suffering, right? But I think that part of that is something I will never understand. But part of it is also just the fact that we all have our own lessons to learn, our own experiences to have. We would not be as enriched as we are if we were all exactly the same. And so we learn through that, right? Um, I, I can't even begin to comprehend the magnitude of what this really means but i know for me what it means is that i'm trying really hard sometimes sometimes harder than others to remember that we are connected you know we all are energy um and and sometimes uh, because i am such an empath when i'm around people who are kind of toxic i can't i just can't yeah people who are very negative or complaining a lot i i can't i i, I have to leave when i work i have no choice i have my big shield and i'm good with that but in my personal life oh i can't um and and because i absorb that and and i i feel that it feels really awful to me it can actually make me sick and i think that when all of us are being really authentic and true to ourselves experience the same things we may not understand the effects of that but we feel the energy you know that you get around somebody and you're like oh wow okay i just don't have a good feeling about this person or wow this person's awesome i can't tell you why but i know that yeah we all have that we all do it's not a special talent it's not a special skill it, we all have it um some of us just choose to pay attention to it well, it's so, it's so true. You, you look at the people you surround yourself with, that is what you're going to get. If you're around a bunch of negative people, you are going to be negative. You just you can't help it. If you're around positive, happy people, you are more likely to be positive and happy. Do you think what we're talking about here explains the bonds between ultra runners that have maybe not spent as much time with someone as you know, a, a regular friendship outside of the world of ultra running, but where you have these these friendships that can come from, even if it's only sharing 20 miles of a 100 miler with somebody, but yet you do feel like you know this person and then the friendship continues or the strong bonds that people form when they're training together or running together. Do you think that has something to do with, with that incredible bond? Absolutely. You know, I think that when you are going through and that's part of part of the other part of the book, the the philosophy of overcoming suffering, Mm -hmm. especially when you're running, running doesn't feel good. No, (laughs) it just doesn't. It doesn't. In fact, one of our researchers at LSU, um, who is also a runner, not an ultra runner, 
he, he is studying, uh, I can't even say it, but DMT, which, which as you know, is illegal um, in most places, but it is being used in research for animals. And he is studying that. And as we were talking about it, you know, he, he basically, if our brains mm-hmm. did not produce all of these highly effective, um, essentially drugs, we wouldn't run. It would be miserable. Runner's high has the exact same chemical composition as morphine. We're all a bunch all of junkies. Right. We are. We're a bunch of junkies. We're a bunch of drug addicts. <laughs> now, if you take that a step further, ultra runners are experiencing DMT. DMT, which I cannot say this long word, um, but you may have heard of it in terms of ayahuasca. Yeah. Um, in terms okay, so... DMT, we naturally produce. We naturally produce literally every drug that you would find naturally. um, Some of there are synthetic versions, but we produce all of that. Our bodies, our brains are our medicine chests, right? Yeah. We can change all sorts of things and create that. So, ultra runners, if we were not creating these endocannabinoids when we are running, um, we would be in so much pain, we wouldn't be able to stand it. And you have to work through that pain in order to get to, okay, now it's okay, right? And we go through that a lot, especially in, in, in ultra marathons. You go through that a lot. This really hurts. This really sucks. But do you notice that when you stop paying attention to it, they say, no, I'm okay. I'm okay. That's all you have to do is tell your brain, I'm okay. I got this. I'm feeling okay. Right. Guess what? Then your brain starts producing all these things that are helping you. Your brain responds to what you tell it. I'm miserable. Okay. You're miserable. I'm not going to produce these endocannabinoids. I am not going to produce um, these 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 chemicals that are going to make you feel more comfortable as you're going. No, I feel good. I've got this. Did you know that just your attitude, your brain will redo, will absolutely produce chemicals that are going to reinforce whatever you're thinking. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, it's interesting you bring that Literally. up because we always, we've seen it a million times. I've talked to hundreds of people that experienced it. I, I talked to a guy uh, a couple of weeks ago. His name is Cole Crosby, and he just ran 346 miles from Los Angeles to Las Vegas as a part of this this race called the Speed Project and talking about just the ups and downs of that, right? And I've heard the same thing from people that have run, you know, Vol State, which is 314 miles across Tennessee, is that you think you're done, right? Like I can't possibly go any further. I can't possibly go any faster. But all of a sudden you will find that when you were struggling just minutes ago to run 15 minute miles, you're now running eight minute miles and you feel absolutely fantastic. We've all seen the rally at races of people who look like, oh, my, this, they're not going to finish. There's no way they're going to finish. And all of a sudden, 10 miles later, they look like they haven't ran a step all day. They're flying and, and they're in good spirits. There's got to be something to that. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. You know, I, I the, the biggest thing, I, I one of the things I researched, and I actually started teaching this um, in, in my, especially in my public speaking classes, because those students, there's a lot of anxiety and a lot of negative emotions that are attached to that class, obviously. I mean, yeah. nobody likes public speaking, except probably you and me. Right, right. <laughs> but I, I think that the, the biggest thing is understanding that there are basically three things that you need to do in order to be successful, not just as an ultra runner, but in life, right? Mm-hmm. The first of that is mental toughness. You can't not have that. I reference Matt Fitzgerald's book, How Bad Do You Want It, many times in my book in his research. That mental toughness and just that belief that I can do anything, which is self-efficacy, when you have these thoughts, your brain is automatically responding, hey, got this, okay. Here are those chemicals you need to make this happen. I'm suffering. This sucks. Oh, okay. Suffering. Okay, I can remove those chemicals. I can give you some other chemicals. Your brain is not judging what's good or bad. It's listening to you. And it's responding to your thoughts. Self-efficacy, you're automatically producing endocannabinoids. Just by saying, hey, you know what? I've got this. I can Mm -hmm. figure it out. And no wonder you're going to feel better as soon as your body is being flushed with that, right? Right. Another one is just emotional regulation. Because when we get upset, we are telling ourselves all kinds of messages that are just a reaction rather than a response. And our reactions are not logical. Um, You know, this sucks. I'm stopping. Why do I do this? I'm questioning my life choices. Of course, you're going to be suffering, right? Versus, all right, okay, I had my little hissy fit, my my self-pity party. I do this to myself. And so let's just suck it up and do it. Right. Right. My favorite mantra is suck it up, buttercup. And I think we all have to have something like that because we do. And if you do that, I like to make myself laugh when I'm in those places because then I realize how ridiculous I'm being. Right. Um, But I think that the most important thing is to keep our as much as possible. The idea that our brains and our bodies are so intertwined in so many ways that we are only beginning to understand and that our thoughts tell our brain how to treat our body. So if you're going to have those thoughts, okay, I'm going to do this. Enough is enough. I, I took this time. I slowed down. I'm done. And now it's time to run again. Guess what's going to happen? You're going to run. You know, it's interesting because I think sometimes we think that our thoughts are reality, not realizing that there's a million different factors in what lead us in thought. Perfect example is, what is what's your state of blood sugar? Like how many times have you in a race had horrible thoughts or this sucks, I'm quitting, and then you take a gel or something and just that little spike in blood sugar can make you go from, oh, this is crap to, oh my God, this is great. I'm loving every second of it. I don't think we realize how much the body affects the mind, the mind affects the body. We like to look at ourselves as as, as those things being two entirely separate entities, the mind and the body, not realizing there's an interconnectedness between the two of them. Absolutely. Absolutely. They're so they're so dependent on each other in so many ways. That's how we get in our to our flow state. We're, we're just too tired to care. And it's I don't even care anymore. I'm just you know, I'm, I'm now in a different place in my mind. I'm not focusing on my body anymore and how I'm feeling because I don't care. I, I just don't. I'm at that place now where all of that is just gone. And when I'm there and I'm in that state and I'm just a little tired, I'm just and I'm not going to not let me, let me go back and say, I don't care, not in an angry way. That's right. different. Right. I, I truly just don't care. And then you're going to find all of these wonderful things happening because you're not, not paying attention to them anymore. Um, and I love that. 
for instance. I can't tell you how many races, and I, you probably have too. I've run with blisters on my feet. I will feel those blisters, right? And I will. I can either let them be my focus, or I can say, yep, have some blisters and start thinking about something else. And most of the time, I'm choosing to think about something else. I don't want to take my shoes off at the aid station. I don't even want to acknowledge it. I'm going to finish these last 30 miles or these last 20 miles, and I'll think about it later. And that's exactly what I do. It's not that I don't feel them at all, but I don't feel them as being as painful as if I paid attention to them. Right. If it was all you're focusing on, I was like, blisters, blisters, blisters. It would feel right, a lot right. different than, oh, they're there. We'll take care of them later. Gwen, have you found in your research or in just your practice ways to access that state of flow? And 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 do we define it? Because I'm thinking if you're listening to this podcast, you actually you, you understand what we're talking about. The runner's high the 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 flow state that we were talking about earlier for a lot of people that takes a long time in a race to get to is there ways that we can access that flow state that runner's high if you will earlier things we can do to get there yes runner's high i don't i can't speak to runner's high but i can speak to some other things so there is a lot of research that shows our thoughts creating these neural pathways in our brain we have a habit we all have habits right Mm -hmm. if our habit is to respond to something with a a heightened sense of negativity then what we've done is we've created a neural pathway that's just an automatic that's just where we go all the time Mm -hmm. this sucks this sucks this sucks if you can change that and you can when you start changing those neural pathways all you have to do is just change your mind and decide Right. So when you decide, I am no longer going to look at this in a negative way. And it's a, it's more challenging in an ultra, which is why overcoming that suffering is more profound than in a regular in a regular basis. But we can all do it. All of us can do it just simply by saying, and I ha- I challenge myself doing this too, especially when I'm out running early in the morning. Somebody's driving like a jerk. We don't have sidewalks. I'm out, I'm out in the swamps, right? So yeah. I'm, I'm running early in the morning and I'm in the road and I've got my dogs with me and somebody's not paying attention. And, you know, I, of course I'm going to get a little, what are you doing, jerk, whatever. A um, few expletives because I, I admit I kind of like those words sometimes. <laughs> but I will say, fantastic. <laughs> when I have a tendency to, get myself out of that default mode network and say, you know what, this is a great day. And no matter what happens, I am going to enjoy this to its fullest. I'm going to feel my body being strong. I'm going to feel my mind being engaged with my body and enjoying every step. And that is what, if you do that repeatedly, there's some experts that say it takes 17 times to either break a habit or build a new habit. Yeah. And there's some, there's some discrepancy there, of course, right? But the whole idea is, you can do that. Visualization. This is the thing that I love. Is you, your central nervous system, your mind, basically, your brain, has no idea between a real event and one that's imagined. So if you see yourself, and, and you think about it, for instance, uh, this is the example I use in my public speaking classes. When you are angry with someone, they're angry with you, and you have to go speak with them, and you know it's not going to be pretty, what is happening to you on a physiological level? You make it a little shaky. Your heart is racing. You might even get a sick stomach. Nothing's even happening. That's just you thinking about it, right? Mm-hmm. Your body's already responding. So when you do that in such a way that you are preparing yourself for a situation, that whole, remember it was woo to visualize things? No, it's real. Because when you start realizing that that visualization 
your body is already starting to develop that habit. Now your brain is creating new neural pathways. Yep, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. And you are more likely to develop that habit. Now, it's best in theta, right? Those times before, right before you fall asleep and right when you wake up, those are the most powerful times of the day for programming your subconscious mind. So if you can, at that moment, when you wake up, before you do anything, before your first thought, go to that and make that a habit, there's no way you can't have that in your life. Um, the other thing that helps a lot is there are a lot, you've probably heard of the of the um, bioral beats. You've probably heard about the different frequencies you can listen to. I have a tendency to, there's, um, I'm trying to remember which one it is. Uh, it's a uh, 520-something hertz. Uh, there's a lot of research to show that just listening to these different frequencies will affect our brains in different ways. So, for instance, um, if you have an injury or if you have some sort of medical problem and you listen to restorative, reparative, you know, body healing and kind of things, which I will sometimes have on an eight-hour, I'll, I'll sleep with it on. You know, yeah. I will literally just let it go on my phone. I'll have it plugged in next. I'll have it on low. That stays on all night long while I'm sleeping uh, or whatever, whatever it is. There's anxiety and, and depression. There's abundance of 888. I love that one. That's I love the high frequencies. Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, whatever it is, you can. There's so many things you can do. It has everything to do with what you listen to, what you look at. I have a uh, I'm so fortunate that I have a meditating room. I have the rocks that I've taken from different places in the world that I have been where I've been out hiking or running or whatever. And that is a reminder to me. I have feathers that, you know, uh, I just happened upon at, at some point that I look as little gifts from the turkey or from the hawk or from whatever. And these are reminders that we're all connected. I'm connected to nature. And even though I'm not in nature at the moment, save the swamp behind my house, um, <laughs> It is all around me. I'm surrounded by it all the time. And even if I'm not in the woods, I am in the woods, if that makes sense. So wherever, whatever you believe to be true is true. By the way, yeah. I want to point out, you said something a couple minutes ago about how your brain doesn't know the difference between real events and imaginative events. For those of you that said that sounds like a bunch of phony baloney, when was the last time your spouse was mad at you for something you did in a dream? If that's Good not proof. Example. <laughs> Good example. And you know, that's the experience you have. If you are ever in a really deep meditation, when you are able to actually leave your body, there is nothing like that. Um, I've been very fortunate that I've been practicing that for many years. And, and so it's easier for me to get to that place. Um, it can be a little overwhelming at first with, when it's, it may seem a little odd, but, you know, I'm always up for adventure, right? I, right? I put myself in all kinds of situations. I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. And I can find myself in these places pretty quickly. And if I because I listen to certain music, for instance, or I have certain um, certain patterns that I do. And when you have any kind of ritual like that, it's easier to get to that place faster because your brain knows what's coming next. One of the things I wanted to talk to you as well is accessing that flow state earlier. And you talked about making those plans and looking at things more positively and just setting yourself up to success that way. Is technology, do you think, in running technology, does that deny us quicker access to that space as well? Because now we're able to quantify everything that's happening to us in that moment. We know exactly what our heart rate is, what exactly what our pace is. And does that 
create a conflict because we all have ideas in our head that we should be. It's not a great race or a great run unless I'm running 815 or whatever. Is technology getting in the way? Absolutely. Um, there's a story of an ultra runner in here, a friend of mine uh, who had been training really hard for a race. And he kept he kept talking about, oh, my God, beat my pace. I have to do this. So take off that damn watch. Just take it off and go have fun. I mean, when we're having fun, that is the high, one of the highest frequencies we can have. When we're worried or concerned about something, that's a much lower frequency. When, you're, when your vibration is high, there is nothing you can't accomplish. When your vibration is lower, like fear, concern, worry, angst, it's going to be more of a struggle for you, right? Mm-hmm. Some people, that in itself is rewarding. They, they like that kind of a struggle. And there's nothing wrong with right. that. Everybody's in it for whatever. I decided a long time ago, um, especially getting older, my pace doesn't matter so much anymore. The fact is I'm out there, I'm doing it, and I'm enjoying it. And if I ever stop enjoying it and start focusing on how much slower I am than I was 10 years ago, that's a problem. Um, that's that's the biggest problem right there. Um, you know, I, I want to be 80 years old, and even if I can't run, I'm going to be out there walking. And I don't care how slow I am, but I'm going to keep doing it. You know, I think that that is where I'm. My motivation is joy. You know, it's 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 feeling joy, and it is experiencing the world through joy. Mm-hmm. Some people, I remember when I was 10 years younger, I was very competitive. Oh, it was always through what was on the clock. It was always my pace. Um, I did that. And it was fun while it lasted. But I was injured all the time. So that kind of sucked. But now it's more of a, I'm settling into this. Yes, of course, I want to be faster. And I want to maintain as much of my pace as possible. But if I'm not thoroughly enjoying it, I always ask myself this question. What is best for my highest good? My ego is not. And if my ego says, if I can't, you know, I'm right now I'm going to, I'm going to start training for a half marathon again. I haven't yeah. done one of those in, I can't even tell you how long, um, but I'm, I'm not going to go back to, oh yeah, well, I'm going to sub to, blah, 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 you know, like I used to instead now I'm saying, you know, okay, I'm a little older, I'm a little wiser. What is feasible for me? And at what point if I get to, a, well, I should say when I get to a point where I'm unsatisfied with my pace, I'm doing it wrong then I have to reevaluate because my ego is not what's best for my highest good. What's hot, best for my highest good is finding joy in what I do and finding nurturance, not not anger because I didn't reach a goal or disappointment because I didn't do what I wanted to do. Those are very low vibrations and those are not really welcome in my life anymore. So all of that, and that's a lot. Boy, we've covered a lot. Good heavens, folks. Yeah. Um, so technology there are times for that right and there are it's recognizing is this better for your higher good and sometimes those competitive nature you bring joy you get the joy of of competition you get the joy of pushing yourself you get the joy of whatever it's almost Mm -hmm. like there's a time and place for everything and just being plugged into yourself and knowing what's bringing you joy and what's not maybe then will allow you to see disturbing patterns develop and stop them before they affect you negatively. So, for example, if you're finding yourself frustrated after day after day after day after day, you know, your daily runs like they're not fast enough, yada, yada, yada. Maybe it is time then to just put the watch down. You know how far you need to go because everyone's got their own routes. You know exactly how long those routes are and just go out and just experience 
the moments of the step, the breath, the step, the breath, the car coming behind you, the things around you. And you may just need some of that to reset those those batteries, if you will. I agree 1000%. I think part of being happy in life is reevaluating the things that don't make you happy mm-hmm. and deciding how to change them so they can or you choose you make different choices. Right? It's kind of like what you were talking about with negative people earlier. I mean, you are the five people you spend time with. That's who you are. Or or four or mm-hmm. three. Yep. And so if you're spending time with someone who's making you feel <laughs> My professional profound word is icky. Um, <laughs> there, you, got, you have to reevaluate why you're spending time with them. It doesn't mean that they're not good people. Everybody's got good in them. I believe that. But they're not good for what is my highest good. And so in that case, we can be more acquaintance friends. And my, real, my, my closest circle, albeit very, very small, is of people that we are affirming and encouraging and validating all the time. We don't complain. We may vent for about five minutes and say, thank you for letting me get that off my chest. Now let's do this. Right. I, that's what I need in my life. I can't be around other things because I feel part of me just being oozing out and, and the good things that I want to keep. Are, are, are being sidelined by my trying to help that other person through whatever they're going through, but they don't even really want help sometimes. They just want to complain. Right. Um, and I believe people are great. Don't get me wrong. But again, we're all on our different journey. And I have to decide at this point in my life, after giving, 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 now I have to decide how I'm going to give to myself. And what that means for me, like I said, is every decision goes back to, is this what is best for your highest good? And that's, that's where I am in my life anyway. We've talked about why runners keep coming back to ultras. It's the drugs. We're a bunch of junkies because our brain yeah. gives us those those great moments of, of feeling great. And, and when we enter that flow state that we've been talking about, that, that state of zen, if you will, when we're interconnected to everything around us mm-hmm. and we're not worried about the watch or the blisters or the whatever, we're just in the moment doing what we're doing, we understand why runners keep coming back. Why do you think crews, what what do what do the crew members, what do the pacers, why do people find so much joy in waiting on someone hand and foot and dragging them through the woods for a day or more? What's in it for them? It is so awesome that you just asked me that, Ryan, because I was actually talking to one of my closest friends about that today. Um, And as a teacher, I can tell you, I had some students competing yesterday in this big contest, and I was had so much joy because they just swept all the awards, Mm -hmm. and and I'm not I'm not bragging on on them or myself necessarily. But what I saw in that moment was somebody who really wanted something and they went after it and I wanted to do everything I could to make sure that they got what they wanted out of it. I've had my time when I did those competitions and I've had my time to to finish those ultras and to do the things that I wanted to do. And it's not that I won't do them again. It's just that I have almost, I would say even more joy helping someone realize their dreams 
than me realizing my own in some cases. What I get out of that, what do we get out, what do any of us get out of volunteering or serving or teaching or, you know, what what happens when that child does something for the first time and they're immensely proud of themselves? I have students after class, sometimes they'll get their grades back and they'll start crying. I want to cry with them. They work so, so hard. And when they, they go through that process of suffering, of learning, of achieving, that's a high that you, I mean, for myself, yeah, I would love it, but I would love it for about five minutes and then I'd be, okay, yeah, whatever, I'm moving on. And you see, help somebody else do that, there's something much deeper in there. You know, you're, you're helping another person. You're giving them a part of yourself in a, such a way that they can do what they want to do. And again, even if it is just towing the line, I helped a friend, I paced her uh, for her first 100K and she was just, this sucks. Why the hell am I doing this? Blah, 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 blah. Running is stupid. I said, you know what? It really is. Let's just stop it after this. She goes, I'm serious. This is, she was cussing up a storm. I'm not doing this anymore. I said, you know what? I'm with you. Let's quit it. We'll just start drinking instead. How about we just meet for, for cocktails and we just stop running? This is dumb. Why do we do it? There's no point. And just making her kind of laugh. But, you know, she finished and she placed. And it, that was, to me, I didn't really do that. I just helped her get rid of all that angst that she was feeling. So that she got there, she said, oh, my God. And she started to cry. And I said, yep, you did it. So cool. better than that. that you're right. You're right. It's almost like you remember the moments you pulled someone out of the darkness and got them to achieve their goals more than you remember your accomplishments. Because you're just like, I helped this person achieve something great. And that's why runners love to run with other runners and to run races with runners and to get through those dark times together and to share something deep inside and vulnerable and and primal with each other because there's no other context that i know of where you do that and you are in a sense one while you're working together i personally have not experienced that in another way shared suffering and the bonds it creates We've talked Absolutely. a lot about some science. We've talked a lot about just, uh, you know, other things, but re- re- the religious aspect of this. Gwen, how would you identify yourself re- religiously? I am not religious at all. Um, I value religion tremendously. Mm-hmm. And I went to a Catholic high school. And I had never grown up with any religion. And honestly, my freshman year of high school, this is a this was Catholic high school in Manitowoc, yeah, yeah. Raleigh. Right I didn't know what the Last Supper was, and when I asked Brother Dan, um, I said I, I he thought I was being a you know smart aleck, and I wasn't. I seriously didn't even know what it was. I will tell you this: I have a lot of friends who are super religious. Mm-hmm. I've befriended nuns. I've had friends who were priests. I've had friends who are Southern Baptist. Everything. And I value that so much. I really, really do. That's just not for me. I'm mm-hmm. not a dogma person. Right. I'm extremely spiritual. I find value in everything. I find beauty in everything. If I had to, a friend of mine is, um, he is the, the department chair of religious studies at LSU. Yeah. And he is, I remember talking with him about our beliefs. And, and he's, a, he's an expert on early Christianity. And he's, he asked me if I'm a Christian. I said, I think I love Christi- the whole idea and the whole idea of Christianity, but 
No, I'm not. And I would be lying if I said that to make somebody else happy. I'm not going to do that. I'm not being true to myself. And so we started talking about our beliefs. And he said, you know, everything you just told me, you are speaking as though you are an early Christian monk. I said, okay. I have no, okay. Maybe I am. Maybe that's how I identify. I also identify as a Zen Buddhist. I also can. So I'm everything and nothing. How about that? Um, I love I love studying and I love learning and I, I value. But when it all comes down to is what works for me, not in a sense that I know everything. I don't. I certainly know nothing. But what I, what I feel to be true for myself is that I am a good person all the time. I'm always trying to help people. I am volunteering, I am helping, I am encouraging, I am the biggest cheerleader for, for everybody that I can I can possibly be that for. But ultimately, what I believe to be true is that we are all one. We are all a part of something much bigger than ourselves, and we can't put a face or a name on it. Some people do, and great if that works for you. But for me... I don't feel any differently about you or anybody else because of your religious beliefs at all. I think we're all beautiful. You know, it's funny that when you were, spo- when you were talking just minutes ago, it just clicked something in my head. Remind me of something Joseph Campbell said, and he said that myth is the penultimate truth. And I think we've lost because because you know TV show MythBusters. Now people th- hear the word myth and they think lie. I'm talking about myth in in the sense of stories we've created to help us to help our brains understand the things we can't un- can't comprehend the right. penultimate truth it's the you know he always said it's it's the it's it's the it's it's the it's the road sign telling you this this direction over here those stories and so i find that i think different stories appeal to different people and help them all end up in the same place uh, mentally and, and spiritually but this is definitely something that I think anybody of any identifiable faith could engage in and not be violating anything that they hold dear and true dogmatically. I would think so. Um, and I, I honestly would, would question, and I don't want to get into a religious debate right. with anybody, but I would question if you feel the, the need to to demoralize or discredit somebody or, or bring in that negativity in order to be right about something or try to believe right. you're right about something. Um, to me, that is not uh, what any religion is based on. And so I think it's more the practice than the idea of, of the myth, the stories, the whatever, the way that people practice. It's, it's kind of like with politics. I'm right, I'm right, and I'm deeply committed to my ignorance. Why do that? There is so much information out there. And as soon as you commit, you're not thinking about anything anymore. You've decided. Thought stops once you decide, and it's for some people. Right. And so not to condemn anybody. We are all at our different places in our journeys, but I I like to keep an open mind. I want to learn more all the time, and I have not decided on anything. I'm open. I want to learn, except for things of ethics and moral kind of issues. But I think it's really important to, when you are a critical thinker, especially when you are an academic and you are a spiritual person, to be open to new information. Isn't it Einstein that said the biggest form, the greatest indicator of intelligence is your ability to adapt to change? 
Absolutely true. But I think it's funny because I, you know, people describe different things and I'm sure you've talked to numerous people and we talked about that flow state. And I, I mentioned the interconnectedness to everything is how I described that flow state. You know what I'm talking about, everybody. But I think somebody like a dear friend of mine, Kerry Long, is a very devout Christian. And I've often said if churches were filled with people like Kerry Long, all of the world's problems will be solved and the world will be a fantastic place because I love that man. His faith is is so beautiful um, to see it in action. I absolutely adore and love his faith. But I think he would describe that moment as a, a, a communication with God, a moment mm-hmm. of 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 prayer, if if you will, to hearing that sound, that 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 small, that still small voice is just getting louder. I I have a couple of friends who went to seminary that I they're ultra runners in my book, and that's what they say. They're they're getting messages, they're communicating with God, and to me, it's the same thing. Exactly, it's beautiful. It's the same thing. All of your research, Gwen, your book, by the way, Ultra Running Mysticism, Mind, Body, Spirit, and the Sacredness of Overcoming Suffering is available. Amazon, go buy it. It goes much deeper than what we went uh, into today on this podcast. But before we go, Gwen, what are three things that you have learned? And maybe something we've already talked about, but three things that you have learned in your research, in your running, that everybody listening to this podcast can take with them to make their running more enjoyable and better. I think that the first thing that comes to mind is whether you think you can or whether you think you can't, you're right. That was a a quote from Henry Ford, and it's true. Your thoughts determine everything. The second thing is that when you train your brain, and you can, we all, all can, when you train your brain, not just I have to, I have to, I have to, but rather I want to, in a relaxed state, there is nothing you can't accomplish. And I think the third thing that I learned from some of our researchers at LSU and others is that when you have focused determination, you will be successful at anything you do. Beautiful stuff, Gwen. Thank, Thank you. So, you, Ryan. This has been a great chat. Thank you for for taking some time out and and geeking out with me and getting a little spiritual and talking about that flow state. Love this stuff. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Ryan. I appreciate you so much. <laughs>